0: Our New Testament reading and our sermon text today is in Mark chapter five, verses one through twenty. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so in need of your comfort and your mercies. God, be our Father of comforts and mercies this morning. Speak, Lord. Let your people hear your word and transform us by it. We look to and long for a transformed life by the power of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What does it mean to beg? The kids probably can't help with this one. They know this word. Kids, what does it mean to beg? Okay, Everett, tell me. Okay. Okay. you want. Mm -hmm. Yes. Nice. Well done, Everett. I'm going to have you come and say it from up here the next time. So you have the mic. You did a really good job, buddy. So begging, right? It's asking for something you really want. Sometimes so much that you don't even say please, maybe I heard. Um, But something you want. You feel you need. And it's a great answer. I'm sure we could ask uh, kids for other answers. I know in our home, we like to beg for desserts. Uh, We like to beg to stay up a bit later. Uh, We like to beg about who sits where at the dinner table. And when I say that, I mean Lindsay and I, because we would like to sit by each other every once in a while. But as you'd imagine, everyone wants to sit by mom. And I don't blame them, because I do too. (laughs) Now, I'm using the word beg in a pretty lighthearted way. But have you ever had to ask for something that you truly, urgently needed? To truly beg is to do just that, to ask for what you urgently need, and that without it, your life, your livelihood, or maybe someone else's is at threat or is being threatened in some way. That is what genuine begging is, begging is asking for an, e- an urgent need to be met. Perhaps this week you begged in prayer for the Wakefield son who had complications at birth. I know there are many of you doing this on Wednesday morning. Perhaps you begged for a child to sleep through the night because one more night without sleep you would feel that your sanity might be gone and your life with it. Perhaps you begged God this week for a family member not to face a devastating illness. What have you begged for recently? You see, the fact that begging itself exists in our world means that the world is not safe. It means that the world is scary. It's even threatening to us in some way, shape, or form. We live in a world where we risk being harmed. We regularly feel the fear of losing or being without something or someone. We can grasp that sense of urgency of wanting or needing to be freed from something or begging that God would give you what you need right this second. We all know that sense of begging, the urgent need for something. Our text today shows three examples of beggars, if you will. There's demons, there's people, there's an unnamed man, all who beg. And it's through them and their begging that this text teaches you, teaches you that you must beg to be with Jesus. You must beg to be with Jesus. And this is because he is the merciful Lord. He is the merciful Lord who is able to do much for you as has become some of our custom in Mark, let's retell this story in order to get a, a clearer picture of what's happening in the story. See, just before this, uh, if you were here last week, you would know uh, that Jesus and the disciples, they had gotten in a boat, uh, got onto the Sea of Galilee. They were leaving the western side, and they're heading east. They're heading away from the side where the Jews lived, and they're going to the side where the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, lived. And they faced this violent storm, and Jesus quieted it, Quieted it by saying, "I think the children can help with this." What, what did Jesus say to the storm kids? Uh, peace. peace? Nice, good team effort. Peace. Be still, and it was. It was. And the disciples, and the disciples were afraid, asking, "What? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him?" Well, a violent storm is followed by a violent man on the shore. Now, there's a good reason to think that as they get to the shore, their feet are hitting it, and it's still dark. right? Because it was evening when they had got into the boat to go across the sea. So either it's still dark, right? They have perhaps torches, that's how they can see, or maybe they're approaching morning. But it's at that very moment they hear a shriek of a man. And they hear pit-pat, pit-pat, pit-pat of feet running towards them. The disciples are not having a good night, are they? This is not, this is not a night that they uh, will remember fondly necessarily. Storms and violent men. But Mark right here in this verse hits a pause button. In verses 2 through 5, he tells us about this man running towards them. This man is possessed by an unclean, unclean spirit. Excuse me. And this man, on account of the Spirit, is so powerful that he is able to break chains with his hands, to shatter them into pieces, verse, verse 4 says. No one had the strength to bind or subdue him. And that word for subdue is the same word for tame, like you might do with a wild beast. No one could tame this man. So he resorted to a living death. He lived among the tombs in the graveyard, among the dead, regularly screaming out, And cutting himself with stones if you can imagine this man this poor naked man is a bloody mass of cuts scabs scars likely infections right this is a pitiful sight this is repulsive and even scary to see this man well this man runs all the way to Jesus and right before Jesus he collapses on the ground and he's either bowed down or he's actually prostrate laying right face down on the ground before Jesus. And verse 8 shows that as the man ran, Jesus had been saying very loudly to him, Come out of him, you unclean spirit. In verse 7, that man laying face down says, What have you to do with me? Or, What are you going to do with me, Jesus? The unclean spirit is so scared, is so defensive that he actually makes a really strange and ironic request. Do you see it there in the verse? He says to Jesus, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Or in other words, swear to God, Jesus, you won't torture me. See, the unclean spirit is scared because it, know, excuse me, it knows who Jesus is. He is the Son of the Most High God. Jesus asks him, "What is your name?" And we learn a terrifying detail here. It is not. Just one unclean spirit. No, he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. See, the word Legion is not uh, in the original Greek. It's not, it's not from Greek, rather. It is in the text. But it's from, uh, from Latin. It's a Latin word because it was the word used by the Roman military, Latin-speaking people, the Roman military for their largest grouping of soldiers. 5,000 to 6,000 soldiers is what made up a legion. So we get the idea here that there might be at least thousands of demons inside this man. Explains the strength, right? And so we imagine a scene where a a legion or an army of demons is cowering face down before Jesus. They beg. They beg Jesus not to send them away from this country, but instead to send them off into these this herd of pigs, 2,000 about, it says. In verse 13, Jesus gives them permission in leaving the man and entering the pigs. Immediately, the pigs rush down the hill into the sea and are drowned. And we're to get the sense that the demons are either disabled or perhaps destroyed, but either way, they're dealt with. Whatever's happened, they're dealt with. In verse 14, though, shifts the scene from this dark, scary picture of what we just saw because the pig herdsmen, they run off to the city and the countryside and they tell everyone about what's happened and the people begin to come. And we might imagine now that it's, it's morning, the light right is shining. And as the people show up in verse 15, what do they see? The demon-possessed, naked, and crazy man now is sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They were afraid. In fear, they listened to the story about the man, Jesus, the pigs, and in verse 17, what did they do? They begged. They begged Jesus to leave them alone. In verse 18, Jesus honors their request, and as he starts to get into the boat, the former demon-possessed man begged to go with him. Jesus doesn't permit it, but says, verse 19, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. Verse 20 resolves the whole story, saying that the man went, he proclaimed, he preached. He preached of how much the Lord Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. What a story. My goodness. This is one of the most sensational stories in the Bible, in my humble opinion. But the story is so strange. There's so much irony in it. There's a lot of scary elements to it. And certainly a number of people begging for one thing or another from Jesus. But from this, we must learn this. This text teaches us that Jesus is the merciful Lord in the flesh. Jesus is the merciful Lord in the flesh. And that he's able to do much for you. So beg to be with him. Beg to be with Jesus. We want to be with Jesus because in being near to him, being with him, we will see his power displayed in the darkest, in the most unclean, and in the most scary of all places. That's our our first point. We'll see his power there. See, in verses uh, 1 through 13, we can almost feel the darkness, right? The desperation of what's happening in the story. But it's possible we might miss what Mark is shouting here or showing us. And it's that everything in this scene is defiled. It's ritually unclean according to the Old Testament law. You see, to be unclean is for something or someone to be unfit to come into worship before God. That's what it is to be unclean. Now, uncleanness doesn't necessarily uh, only come from sin, right? Because it could come from uh, touching a corpse or perhaps from, from childbirth, uh, it could come from eating pork or an infectious disease, or if, an un- if another unclean person touched you. Perhaps the uncleanness even comes from just being marked as mortals, right? So many things could make someone unclean or unfit to come before a holy and pure God. And so in these verses, what do we have? We have an unclean spirit and an unclean man. Why? Because he lives a bun- a bu- among a bunch of corpses. Uh, in an, uh, around an area where the occupation is what? selling a forbidden meat, pigs, right? And it's even possible that they're selling it into the Decapolis or into an area where Roman armies actually lived, right? They're selling it to the occupying, unclean force that is dominating the area. This story screams unclean. The reason why this is so important to see is that it means that Jesus is not scared of defiled or unclean people. Jesus is not scared of immense darkness, of desperations, or demons. Jesus isn't scared of these things because he is the son of the most high God. That is who he is. See, the phrase the most high God is how, how Gentiles actually would, would often name whoever was the greatest God in their mind. It's the God who has all power, ability, authority. But even the Jews would use it. We heard it in uh, Psalm 107 today. Right? They called God the most high God. But Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. That's interesting. As as an example to explain this, uh, this week we had two births, right, in our church. Uh, For those mothers who gave birth, did they give birth to kangaroos? The children can yell no if they want. No. No, of course not. What about aardvarks? No. Eagles? No. My wife would have been excited. She is obsessed with eagles. They didn't give birth to trees or anything else for that matter. Why? Because humans give birth. They beget humans. Dogs beget dogs. Trees, trees, right? See, when we speak of Jesus as the Son of God, the only begotten Son of the Father, we must understand that this is saying that Jesus is of the same nature, of the same kind or type as the Father this is why we say that jesus is eternally begotten he's not created he's never born right but he is of the same nature power ability authority of the father the most high god he too is god this is why he can forgive sins this is why he can call out to the wind and the waves be still and they listen or later in verse 19 when he talks about what the lord has done he's referring to himself as lord And this is why the Legion is terrified. He is the son of the Most High God. And you and I know we are scared of that which is more powerful than us, aren't we? Many parts of the world throughout history and still today live with something called a uh, a power and fear paradigm. It's how they see the world, especially when it comes to spiritual forces, right? They try to find things that will either block, control, or protect them from evil spiritual forces. And this is very common throughout the world, even if it's less common uh, in America. And we saw this overseas uh, in Turkey, that many people use something called a nazar, an evil eye. It would look like this. Look at it, I even have a prop for you guys today. The evil eye. Now forget it. Um, no, you'll, You might see it more and more in America. I know I've seen it. But why did they use this? They treated it like it was a token or an amulet of some, of some sort. It was meant to ward off evil spirits or, or push away bad luck but literally they would put it on cars, shirts, they would pin it on babies. This was everywhere. You name it, it was on there. And the reason why, it was all meant to hinder what they feared was going to do them harm, right? They used this in order to stop the power of the evil spirits. Now, Westerners, though we're fascinated perhaps by ghost stories or uh, demonic possession films, we often don't really believe we need dream catchers, Or tokens or uh, amulets of any of any sort unless it's perhaps your favorite jersey when your favorite team is playing a sport you might think things like that you're not superstitious you're just a little stitious yeah (laughs) but part of the reason part of the reason the West doesn't believe in evil spiritual forces or demons what-have-you is because we often overestimate our own power our own abilities we Think that we can deal with our fears. And what do we do to do that? We get more locks. We get more guns. We diversify our savings. We get a whole host of insurances, right? Now, those may all be very wise and loving things to do for our families. I'm not saying not to do those things. But they also may be our attempts to gain power over what scares us. It's difficult to live in the world and not be God. It's difficult to know that everything is out of your hands truly, that there are powers beyond you physically and spiritually that you are blind to. This is scary. It is. Threats of harm, starvation, abject poverty, or an inability to provide for a family are all scary things, as are real demons, right? Demons who might even torment you. Children, can I tell you something? Children, can I tell you something? Jesus is not afraid of of the dark Jesus is not afraid of, of the scary things he is the son of the most high God and children if you trust in Jesus Christ he is with you always you never need fear the dark adults can I tell you something Jesus is not scared of the dark Jesus is not scared of scary things not, especially not the things that scare you or I He's not scared of intruders in your home, not of economic collapse, not of injury or death. He's definitely not scared of the unclean or defiled pasts that you have, not your devastating addictions to substances or screens or the images upon them. He is not scared of your damning sin that you refuse to let go. They do not terrify Jesus. And being with him, being with this Jesus, is where you can see the same sheer power That he has over the demon over the Legion to free you from whatever it is that binds you the things you fear see there is nothing more urgent in your life to beg for than to be with Jesus the one who has all a power and authority because there you see his power displayed there is much that he can do for you he's not scared of the dark or the scary things and with him you don't need to be either. Well, if Jesus is so powerful as the merciful Lord, then we want to beg to have him, no matter what it would cost us, no matter what it would threaten in our lives. And this is our second point. Look at verses 14 to 17 for this. Did you notice what the people are scared of in verse 15? This is meant to be strange, ironic to us. Verse 15, they see the formerly naked, cut up, superhuman strong villain now clothed, self-controlled, rational, and at peace, learning from Jesus. And they were afraid. That's what they were scared of. That, Jesus. Verse 16 says after this that they were told what happened to the man and the pigs. Now, of course, the the loss of the pigs alone could be a a sign or a threat of of economic disaster. 2,000 pigs... Even now, right, imagine how much that would be in money. It's a market crash, right, into the sea to be exact. But why would Jesus permit this type of loss or threat? We read this and we're like, wow, that's, that's kind of bad. Doesn't that seem wrong in some way that Jesus allows it? Well, it's possible that it could have been an unclean business, right, it selling pigs perhaps to foreign soldiers who occupy, right? It could be an unclean business. It could be uh, simply seeking to show us that the nature of demons, right? Because Jesus didn't send them. He permitted them to go. The nature of demons and, the, and Satan himself is to kill and destroy, to hurt. And so what do they do when they enter the pigs and their terror and running? They do just that. They destroy. But if anything, what this is actually showing, if anything, it's showing unequivocally that the rescue of one man from a dark, Desperate and defiled life is worth 2,000 pigs. It's worth immense capital assets. It's worth economic collapse to see the redemption of one man. Jesus and Mark don't give us any other tips of, oh, and this is why that happened. No, they think this is enough. You don't need another answer why this happens beyond what, we, what is obvious in the redemption of this man. Well, verse 17 makes clear that the people aren't in humble awe of this man's release and redemption, and neither are they actually enraged with Jesus, right? They're not like, pay us back right now. No, they are scared. Likely, they fear because they worry about what he could threaten next in their lives or their livelihood, and they beg Jesus to leave them alone. Many of you likely know that uh, familiar hymn. It's been modernized uh, a number of times called, Give Me Jesus. Right? Its chorus goes, give me Jesus, give me Jesus. You may have all this world, but give me Jesus. It truly is striking a begging tone, right? You can have all the world. Take it all. My health, my wealth, all of it. Just give me Jesus. These people are urgently singing a different version. Right? Give me anything but Jesus. Give me all the world, but just keep Jesus Away. Which version of the hymn do you sing? What areas of your life do you want Jesus to leave you alone in? What are you unwilling for him to threaten in your life? To remove? What is the thing you say, I won't give it up? See, the scariest thing The scariest thing that you can do in life is to beg Jesus to leave you alone is to beg Jesus to get out of an area of your life Romans 1 makes clear that if you tell Jesus to stay out of an area he'll give you over to it and you know what that's called judgment that's judgment him allowing you to continue on in that life and leave you be if you beg Jesus to leave your life or an area of your life, you're saying, you may have Jesus, but just give me all the world. See, whatever you think is gain in this life, it is a loss compared to knowing Jesus Christ, the merciful Lord. It means you and I, we must beg to have Jesus no matter what he'd threaten, no matter what he'd send cascading down into the sea, no matter what relationship, job, future plans, doesn't matter. All is loss compared To knowing Jesus Christ we look finally to our last few verses and I want you to to notice this have have you seen a pattern yet the demons fear Jesus and beg to be away from him the people fear Jesus and they beg to be away from him and then verse 18 irony strange thing here the man who is fearful he's he's terrifying the way the story begins but not here he doesn't fear but he still begs. What does he beg for? What does he urgently need? His urgent request is just to be with Jesus. Here's the stranger, the, the stranger part. Ready? Jesus granted the demon's request. He granted the people's request. What does he do with the man? See, in Mark, Jesus has typically shown two different responses to individuals, right? There's disciples who he says, come follow me, and they come follow him. But to the other people who he heals or he you know, sets free from a demon, what does he tell them to do? Yeah, he says, shut up. He says, be quiet. Don't, don't tell anyone. He's done that up to this entire point, and he will for a couple more chapters at that. The Jews misunderstood Jesus' mission though, right? He came from a largely Jewish area where he was doing the ministry and they all wanted this political Messiah. So initially Jesus called them to silence. But here, where's Jesus? He's in an unclean land filled with unclean people and Jesus will not leave them without someone preaching. He won't do it. See, the word for proclaim there is actually the same word keruso for preaching. Which is what Jesus came to do, right? To preach about the kingdom of God. And so the unnamed man, this is astonishing. The unnamed man is the first person that Jesus commissions to go preach in the book of Mark. Others come to him, but this is the first man he says, Go and tell others what I have done. Jesus has risen a man essentially from the dead, and he has sent him to declare all that God has done for him, about how, he can have, how you can have life, power, and peace in Jesus Christ and in his kingdom. See, this whole story is about Jesus, the merciful Lord who defeats a legion of demons, no contest, to free a man to preach about what the Lord has done for him in the place he grew up. And if you grew up in this area as I did, this is a great encouragement to you to go preach about what God has done in your life. Verse 20 says that this is just what he did, and everyone marveled. Some, uh, some years back, a, a friend of mine, he was uh, living in modern-day Georgia, or not, not Georgia, uh, modern-day Jordan. And while he was there, he met a man named Fatih. And this man was a, a church leader. He was actually a, a national director for a ministry in the area. And Fatih had been raised uh, by a Christian family. Now, around Fatih, uh, it was 90% uh, Muslim. In, in that area, right? So, it's not common to grow up in Christian families or have Christian heritage and ancestors as he did. Now, his small home uh, village it was actually tucked up in these hills, and it overlooked a sea. It happened to be the Sea of Galilee, and where he grew up was actually the very region and place where Mark Five took place. See, Fatih and his family and the Christians there, who had been there for centuries, or likely longer according to what they believe they firmly believe that the lineage of their faith could be traced back to an unnamed man who came and told them about all the things the lord had done for him what has the lord done for you christian if you're a christian here what has the lord done for you how has he had mercy on you Many Christians would reply, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Well, you're not wrong. But notice this in Mark 5. There is not a whisper of forgiveness in this passage. It's not what this passage is about. Though, yes, this man is forgiven, right? He trusts in Jesus Christ. Jesus commissions him out. He is forgiven due to his faith. But what the Lord has done for him has given him a transformed life. A transformed life. When you think of what the Lord has done for you, can you see or say how the Lord has transformed your life? Not just your sins forgiven, as spectacular as that is. And yes, we must tell people that the chief work of Christ is He died and right forgives us of our sins. So tell people this. But this passage is telling you that those who trust will have a transformed life. And Jesus has the power to transform your life. A life from living among the tombs, among the dead in sin, shackled in the cycles of your sin. A life where you have been freed from hidden ugly sin that you fear to say out loud. A life where Jesus can rescue you from addictions of every sort, from fits of rage, from pride, from shame in your past. See, this is the testimony that the man is going to tell about, about the power of God for a transformed life. To Jesus Christ what is different for you and I than the unnamed man is that when we beg to be with Jesus his answer is yes Jesus by the power of the Spirit of Christ the Holy Spirit resides in you so wherever you go to declare what he has done Christ is the one who does it through you he's the one who convinces others Of what he has done to the non-christian for the person here whose faith feels non-existent or waning or weak in some way what dark areas do you hide where do you feel the torment or inability to change yourself where do you beg for change for peace for redemption we all have those places Where is shame the dominant theme in your life? Where do you wish you could taste freedom from temptation to self-harm, to self-insult, or freedom from some addiction, or that thing that you want, even though you know it continues to destroy you? See, Jesus, the merciful Lord, is able to do much for you. Run to Jesus. Fall before this Jesus. Do not be afraid of what he threatens in your life yes he is powerful but he is gentle he gives true freedom and when you beg to be with him his answer is yes dare not spend another day apart from jesus trust him today to close uh martin luther obviously has so many quotes as we will continue to traverse them uh we pray for many years to come But one of his uh, most timely quotes for us today were actually his dying words. They were this, we are beggars, this is true. John T. Rhodes, uh, in the book that we've been studying in Sunday School, adds to that. He says, thankfully, our God is a God of beggars. It is in light of that merciful Lord who is able to do much for you that you must beg to be with him you must beg to see his power displayed in your dark life. Beg to have him no matter what he threatens, no matter what he takes away, because with him it's gain. Beg that he goes with you as you declare what he's done for you. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you love the world by sending your Son, the Son of the Most High God, the one who came not just to die for sins, not just to free us from that which damns us, our own sin and the punishment we deserve for it, but the Son who came to show power to release us from living among the dead in our sin. Lord Jesus, I pray for all of us today. I pray for your church. God, would you come and show your power in our lives? Would you release us from that which we cling to that kills us? Set us free that we might run to you and with you, that we might go to all those around us to declare what the Lord has done for us, the mercy he has shown. It's in Jesus Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.